0: Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 303, Shane the Proud. You might have noticed that Christmas is coming. I mention that because the geese are undeniably looking a little bit porky around my neck of the woods and there seems to be an inordinate number of old men brandishing hats. So that alerted me to the fact If you are looking for the perfect Christmas present, you might look no further than the History of England shop, where you can fill up your boots with mugs, t-shirts and, excitingly, listers. These are lists of rulers of England and neighbouring kingdoms on a reasonably attractive A2 or A3 chart, perfect for sticking on the back of the loo door to keep yourself busy while doing your business. Go to the History of England website, thehistoryofengland.co.uk, where you'll see a big sign for the shop you might also note that on the website is also a way of buying annual membership of the History of England for other people, friends, enemies, relations, with a back catalogue of 75 hours of podcasts available and up to 90 new minutes every month. So at 40 quid a year, it is surely a snip. So, hi the to thehistoryofengland.co.uk, but don't call me Shirley. Secondly, now, I'm making it for lost time, everyone, and giving you the benefit of hours and hours lying around listening to podcasts. Today, I have another excellent one to recommend. It is called Age of Victoria by Christopher Fernandez packham Christopher has a very rich, mellifluous voice, so it is a joy to listen to. And he's one of those podcasters whose enthusiasm really makes its way across the airwaves. His focus so far has been social history, which makes a great change to many podcasts, and these Victorians are really complicated and a fascinating lot, though now he's having a hack at Empire, which is great, not only a most interesting topic of course but also great for me to pick some tips so age of Victoria on a podcatcher near you, right now that everyone sit up back straight, eyes front, and so on. this is where the fun stops because we have come to speak of Elizabethan Ireland. It's not a pretty picture, to be honest, whatever your background or wherever you come from. Although there's plenty of drama, that's for sure. I forget actually where we got to in our story because it's so long ago. My memory, possibly incorrect, is that we had arrived and talked about Cromwell's promotion of his boss, Henry VIII, to the King of Ireland rather than, as previously, Lord of Ireland, as based on a grant from the Pope, which, of course, after the break with Rome was... Uncomfortable. Now, there were negative and positive reasons advanced for this assumption of kingship. One was that because sovereignty had been rather fudged before, and this had encouraged license amongst the Irish people who had not been obedient as they of right and according to their bounden duties ought to have been. A more positive approach, or more positive if you're an English Tudor, was to create one kingdom, rather than one separated into Gaelic and English zones and where all the population would receive the same rights under the crown as did the old English, speaking English language and subject to English law. This was the same approach Cromwell had taken in Wales, though things were to play out rather differently there of course. But Ireland was also very different to Wales in that although the Irish Parliament remained subordinate to the English Parliament, it did have its own parliament its own privy council, the theoretical constitutional position was the same as in England government by consent through Parliament. Ireland was a kingdom parallel to England. That, anyway, was the hope and expectation, and the policy of surrender and regrant was to help implement and embed that policy in Irish soil. The Gaelic chiefs would surrender their lands to Henry, and he would then regrant them with an English title and rights, Baron Earl and so on. Now there was a fundamental problem with this, in that under Brehon law, land was not owned by the individual, but by the sept, or clan if you like, and this would create some serious problems about recognition of the new rights and potential for get-out clauses. Anyway, Surrender and regrant is, I am sure, where we left it, because I remember that when I said that the failure of accommodation later in the century was not as inevitable as hindsight would have it, I received a Sarky message. An Englishman telling the history of Ireland expects a Sarky message or two. Wait till we get to the other cromers. But just to pick up on that again, to show how recalcitrant even someone as compliant as I can be The story of Elizabethan Ireland is at least in part the story of how sheer incompetence and viciousness of Elizabethan government would fritter away the chances for success of that policy. Although obviously religion will also have a part to play, but less so in the 16th century than you might think. Let me give you an example. Settle back and prepare to hear about lots of revolts in Ireland over the next half century or so. Some names to bedazzle you we will have Shane O'Neill, Edmund Butler, the Earl of Thomond, Rory, Ugo Moore, the Lord of Leash, Viscount Boltinglass, and then the big one, Hugh O'Neill, the Earl of Tyrone. It has been thought that these rebels were always rebels, harbouring their Irish grievances and desire to breathe the nationalist air of freedom. But in fact, all of them had either served the government or been willing to cooperate with the crown. Hugh O'Neill was famously no stranger to the English court as a nipper. In the end, all of them would feel forced into revolt by the loss of status or ambition, or mostly by a fear and distrust of the English administration. Talking about England and Ireland's history and relationship, Rather tends to be a discussion of politics and distinctly fighty politics of that, and fear not, I shall not deprive you of all of that, after all, I'm a podcaster. But we should also say that it was of course not the intention of the English crown to sink their Irish kingdom in blood and destruction. Very much the opposite. In fact, they confidently expected that by making Ireland English, the local inhabitants would be helped, improved, and live happier, more productive, richer lives within the framework of English law and governance. To many of the English in Ireland, Gaelic lordship was nothing short of tyranny. This is from a tract produced by Edmund Tremaine in 1573 called The Discourse of Ireland about the Gaelic Lord. He useth the inferior people at his will and pleasure. He eateth and spendeth upon them with man, horse and dog he useth man, wife and children according to his own list, without any means to be withstanded or gainsained, not only as an absolute king, but as a tyrant or a lord over bondsmen. And by the time Elizabeth came to the throne, it seemed that Gaelic customs and culture, far from being subsumed by Englishness, were actually growing in strength. I think you may be familiar, after previous episodes, with the groups of people living in Ireland in the 16th century, or at least how those human beings were compartmentalised, it being impossible to get through life without a few rationalisations and neat boxes. There was the Gaelic Irish, or, as they were known to the Elizabethans, the Wild Irish. There were the Old English, who were descendants of the original Norman invaders in the days when the Normans were like a rash, pretty much getting into every crevice. The New English people who came over to settle or be part of the administration or set up shop as merchants in the towns. Now, there was relatively little confusion about the cultural orientation of the Gaelic Irish, or indeed of the New English, but of the Old English there was. By the 1540s, the Englishry of both types had shrunk to about one half of the island, and the New English were shocked on arrival to discover that the Old English... Had adopted a sort of hybrid identity. On the one hand, they generally recognized the authority of the crown, part the normal sort of rumpuses powerful nobles periodically had with their rulers. They passed on land by a primogeniture like the English peerage, and they saw themselves as English. But they adopted much of the culture of Gaelic lords and of their Gaelic tenants offering hospitality to Gaelic poets, judging their tenants' grievances according to Brian law. They spoke an older kind of English, more in tune with Chaucer's English. There was a difference then, and increasingly natural antagonism between the New English and the Old English, especially as the Reformation failed to take deep root in Ireland and it became possible by the end of Elizabeth's reign to conceive of the idea of an Anglo-Irish nationalism rather than simply English versus Gaelic-Irish. When they came to Ireland then, the new English of the mid-16th century were a bit horrified at what they found. Not only were the old aristocracy going native, but the land was going native too, and farming in this forms a sort of metaphor. The English were firmly convinced That productive farmland, or at least lowland champion land, was there to be ploughed, given over to arable. But they found arable lands deserted, given over once more to the Gaelic concentration on cattle rearing, or reverting to Irish forest and scrub. It was a metaphor for cultural degeneracy in the uncomprehending eyes of the English, rather than pastoral agriculture. And the Irish practice of following their cattle to summer upland pastures convinced many English that parts of Ireland were basically empty. The belief that the Irish inhabitants were basically underusing their land would form an excuse for annexation and plantation. There is a word also of civility that will appear more and more. The English understood Gaelic life and customs not one whit, and they saw it as backward as part of their mission then, was to bring to the Irish what they termed as civility. This is a process remarkably parallel to lowland Scots and their attitudes towards Gaelic Highlanders in Scotland. This confusing cultural patchwork and strategy to make the Tudor monarchy a reality had created the Tudor crown's only standing army, or at least the only one after Calais fell. By the 1550s, the army numbered about 2000. But it's possible to overdo the picture at the start of Elizabeth's reign of an ungovernable and divided land. Large parts of it were actually quite easy to govern. The English Pale on the eastern coast was largely peopled by descendants from medieval English colonists and remained Anglophile in attitude, though with increasingly strong links with Gaelic society. They were ready to provide military support to the crown and were actually often quite excited at the assertion of royal power. They hoped and expected to win riches and influence through the process and be involved in the management of the extended royal polity. And other areas were pretty dependable for the crown too. counties Wexford, Waterford and Kilkenny, the coastal towns Cork, Kinsale, Limerick and Galway. Together, these areas were also the most heavily populated of the island. However, to bring the whole island of Ireland into Cromwell's original vision of a kingdom conforming to English laws and land ownership carried with it an implication, a potential consequence. In the extremely unlikely event that the Irish didn't want to become English, I mean, a distant possibility, obviously, because we came with lardy cake after all, but if they did not, then they might have to be coerced even in the 1570s, when Tremaine wrote his discourse, this was a live issue. As Tremaine put it, Elizabeth needed to decide whether she should govern Ireland after the Irish manner, as it hath been accustomed, or reduce it as near as may be to the English government. Tremaine here uses the word reduce in the Elizabethan manner, so rather than a negative lessening of Ireland, it may, meant a restoration to a more normal state of being, in their view. So, this issue had for decades already been recognised that it might be necessary to abandon the attempt to reconcile and bring Gaelic lords with them through the policy of surrender and regrant, and instead embark on conquest. Indeed, in 1562, the then Viceroy, the Earl of Sussex, had written a plan which called for the conquest and colonisation of Gaelic Irishry, including the implementation of English-style local institutions, a plan which his successor Henry Sidney was also pursue. It's important to note that conquest never meant replacement of the ruling class or of genocide. The latter was an option consciously rejected on the rather callous ground that a prince was dependent for her glory on the number of people in her kingdom, and England could not be drained of people to populate Ireland. Nor did conquest mean the replacement of the Irish Gaelic ruling class, did mean all be coerced into government in the English way. On the balance of probabilities, it seems that Elizabeth supported this plan for conquest. But it's a bit confusing because at the same time, because of one of the first things Elizabeth actually did when she became queen, was to adopt another strand of her normal policies, government on the cheap. And so she ordered the standing army in Ireland to be cut by a fifth. But despite this, it seems Elizabeth believed conquest would be necessary and would be beneficial actually, but was to proceed slowly, bit by bit. Conquest and Anglicisation offered Ireland better governance, and as I have mentioned, what the Elizabethans called civility in the Elizabethan view, which essentially meant being more English. While the ability to turn the world English may not be considered an obvious benefit, it's just worth noting that before we descend into the warfare, in their own minds at least, the English thought the Irish would be better off by the end of it. They would cultivate their land more productively, they would be more prosperous, be governed through principles of consent, be closer to God. But there were other considerations, of course. One of those was religion. The Reformation had proceeded rather poorly so far, especially outside the Pale, and the conversion from the old religion needed to be accelerated. As it happens, though, here Elizabeth and her council were reluctant to push reformation too hard because they thought it might needlessly inflame local relationships at a time of change and threat. So harsh religious repression, such as executed in the Netherlands by Spain, did not yet occur in Ireland, or even the level of repression that was occurring in England at the time second consideration was security. The English were constantly worried that Ireland would give their enemies a door into Elizabeth's kingdoms. And while conflict and religious difference existed in Ireland, that danger was enhanced still further. As the war between England and the Catholic world burned hotter, and as the English fears turned out to have some foundation that there could be rebellion and Catholic rebellion in Ireland, the search for security became more pressing. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. So, while again we'll spend most of our time talking about violence, and that indeed ended up being something of a focus on the period in Ireland, the English did spend time and effort trying to bring what they saw as better governance to Ireland. The basis of that governance would be the Shire, the division of Ireland into 32 counties of territorially based units of administration. Each would have identical judicial, administrative and fiscal structures. This was not new. Some shires had been successfully established in Norman days, but from the 13th century had been allowed to decline In their place, lordship had re-established its hold with the practices associated with the term coin and livery, lordships defined by power relationships rather than based on property. As historian Kieran Brady writes, this system was unstable, violent and wasteful, a morass of shifting allegiances, faction and clientage. Even the winners in this process, including old English earls such as Ormond and Kildare, recognised this and they were actually quite receptive initially to reform. So, what was the detail of the Earl of Sussex's plan? The Earl of Sussex's plan was to revive and extend Sharring and Administration, then was based on what he described as constitutions. In each of the Shire, fundamental judicial principles were to be asserted, such as defining stealing, burning and murder to be capital offences. Accessories to threat, theft and other crimes were to be prosecuted and punished. Trial by jury was to be established, empanelling freeholders or simply honest men. The practice of retaining, livery as it were, was to be tolerated, but it must be regulated by booking any such retainers with the provincial governors and the council. Irish lawyers or the Brions could plead and be paid for under English law or after the order of the Breon law or allowed customs. This is a very conciliatory approach, but in there lay a fatal contradiction, since in many places Breon law was fundamentally opposed to English law. Sussex's plan, though, was not a one-size-fits-all approach. In the pale No greater local administration was needed, in his view, the viceroy would take part in the meetings of the sheriffs, magistrates and officers. In some places, he advocated new provincial councils to govern regions covering a number of shires. This was a practice already used in England and Wales with the Council of Wales and the Council of the North, run by a government-appointed president, working with the Council of Local Lords and Interests. President's roles were administrative and military, and proposed for Munster, Connacht and Ulster. Even there, there were nuances between those three, with the proposed president in Ulster, for example, to be specifically military. Such councils would be unnecessary, thought Sussex, in areas such as Leinster, where the O'Burns, O'Toole's and other Gaelic dynasties were already operating a shire system. To a degree, by the turn of the century, the English could claim that the policy of sharing had been completed successfully and the provincial councils established in Munster and Connacht. A new court to deal with petitions and infringements of public order, the Irish Privy Council remained and in theory contained both old and new English lords and in the early years in practice too. The Parliament was to meet as called by the Viceroy. However, the reality was that events badly affected the character of what was planned to be a civil administration. Increasingly, Irish administration became militarised under the pressure of conquest, violence and rebellion, so that shires were often only in place on paper. Courts were beset by disorganisation and a lack of comprehension amongst the inhabitants. The policy of colonisation, adopted in Monster, Leash and Offaly, were imposed from Westminster rather than growing out of local support. And so the Viceroy's universally hated the scheme and cut across shiring and administration, as well as generating massive local resentment and resistance, as we'll see. But the most vicious and corrosive development was probably driven by martial law. The original source of this problem also lay with Sussex, Martial law in England was deployed during rebellion. In Ireland, Sussex adapted the law to allow it to be used prior to rebellion. More than a little different in spirit as well as practice. So, if the viceroy issued a commission of martial law to somebody, the recipient English military captain was able to kill pretty much anyone they liked, with the exception of the greater lords. They were entitled to danger money, in the form of one-third of the goods and possessions of anyone they killed. Partly, the expansion of the use of martial law was driven by the Elizabethan demand for savings and economy in the military. Here was a system by which troop captains could have their salaries supplemented. How private individuals could be issued commissions, therefore acting as soldiers, that didn't have to be paid by the state. Viceroy's consistently failed to prosecute captains who exceeded their commissions under Sussex. The use of commissions had largely been confined to the east, but the Viceroy Sidney and the Viceroy Fitzwilliam that followed Sussex used the mechanism of martial law with increasing regularity. Henry Sidney issued at least 90 of them during 1565 to 1571 and the rate increased to the end of Sydney's second term of office in 1578. The rewards encouraged adventurers to come to Ireland, to seek not the delivery of good governance for the betterment of the people, but to enrich themselves by imposing the power of the Queen's government at small cost to the state. The result, in the words of historian David Edwards, was that Ireland was increasingly in the grip of military and security agents of the Crown, authorised to carry out killings and punishments with impunity and seek enrichment in the process. Unsurprisingly, often Gaelic lords and chieftains struck back at their tormentors, which in a gruesome sense simply justified the idea of preemptive martial authority. To give her some credit, when Elizabeth became aware of the problem, she did take action. In 1585, she ordered a reduction in the use of martial law. In 1591, she abolished its use completely but uh, their damage had been done. The Cailleach, as she was called in Gaelic Ireland, or the Hag, was seen as a tyrant, and things were a little better among the Anglo-Irish. Right, well, that's enough preamble, I think. Let us start to talk about what actually happened and see how far we get this week. It might be best just to nibble a corner of Mary, in her manner of speaking, to return to 1556 and the appointment of one Thomas Radcliffe as Governor of Ireland. Radcliffe was soon, in 1557, to succeed his older brother as Earl of Sussex, so Sussex we're going to call him. As already described, Sussex was a man with a plan. Of the two strategies, accommodation or conquest, Sussex favoured an aggressive assertion of his monarch's rights in Ireland. Face the problem, though, in the form of an almost equally ambitious man, one Shane O'Neill, a gale who sought to enhance his power in Ulster, in the north of the island. For whose background, we need to go back a step further to explain that as well as being controlled by a number of Irish lords, parts of Ulster were also being settled by Scots from the western isles of the MacDonalds. The reason why the MacDonalds had started to settle in the area is a bit obscure, but possibly encouraged by the marriage of a Macdonald to the Bissets, supporters of the dominant Ulster O'Neill clan. In the early 16th century, infiltration of the Macdonalds increased into an area of Antrim called the Glyns and onto Ratlin Island. In the reign of James V, it seems that English fears of a Scottish invasion of Ireland, in the style of Edward Bruce of the 14th century, would become a reality again. Fears put off by the defeat of a combined Scottish and Irish army in 1539. The fear, there remained, and with the arrival of the 1550s, the fear of Scottish involvement became all tied up with fear of encirclement of English by the French, now of course led by the Regent of Scotland, the French Mary of Guise, and her daughter and queen-to-be Mary I. So, hold on to that thought about the Macdonalds. Back to Shane O'Neill then, the son of Con O'Neill, leader of the Clanderboy O'Neills. Shane was fostered out to another powerful Ulster clan as a kid, the O'Donnells, in his youth, and survived abduction by a rival who challenged Con O'Neill's leadership of the O'Neills, unsuccessfully as it happens. In 1542, Con O'Neill went in for the surrender and regrant offer from Henry VIII and his eldest son, Matthew O'Neill, was simultaneously made baron of Dungannon. Young Shane, meanwhile, was left out in the cold. But you just can't keep a man like Shane the Proud down. In 1548, he defeated the O'Neill clan in battle, ostensibly to reassert his father's control over a clan that was being undermined by those cursed MacDonalds taking over in Antrim. In this end of keeping the Scots at bay, Tyrone's aims coincided with those of the English, who had built a garrison fort at Newry in South East Ulster to assert more control. As Shane sought to build his power in Ulster, the struggle became a triangular one between Dungannon, his brothers, and Shane and Tyrone. The net result was Tyrone was in the end driven out and would die in the Pale in 1559, and Shane despite not being the Earl of Tyrone de jure, was now the Earl of Tyrone de facto, and he achieved this in part by securing the support of the Scottish MacDonalds. Part of the problem here was that we now had two competing methods of claiming lordship. The Gaelic system, by which Shane claimed to be Tanaistu, or heir, and the English descent by primogeniture, which, after Tyrone's death, Brian O'Neill should have been made Earl not Shane. The English tended to misinterpret Shane's motives, seeing him as simply refusing to accept the rights of the Earl. The English Chancellor from the Pale, Thomas Cusack, went there to try and understand all this tangle, and clearly found against Shane, reporting back of him that his pride, stubbornness and all, bent to do what he could to destroy the poor country. O'Neill burned the Earl of Tyrone's house at as Cusack left, which I guess was one way of flicking the Vs. This was the crisis Sussex inherited when he arrived in 1556. English intervention had not been consistent or forceful. They rather accepted Shane O'Neill's de facto control and failed to adequately support the ousted Earl of Tyrone. The interplay of the traditional shifting alliances and factions also played its part. The old English Earl of Kildare supported Shane against his father, for example. It's all a bit of a mess, and frankly Sussex fluffed his lines from the start. He was furious at Shane's alliance with the MacDonalds, but agreed to pardon him nonetheless, and he simply ignored the succession issue, and again left the Earl of Tyrone out in the cold. Encouraged by this, O'Neill attacked the O'Donnells and the scale of his ambition became clear. He sought to extend the power of the O'Neills so that there should be but one king in Ulster for the future. In 1557, Sussex called for the O'Neills to support him as he carried war to the MacDonalds. Shane, though, contrived not to reply and when Sussex attacked into Ulster, he also put Armagh to the sword to try and weaken Shane's grip on the lordship. Sussex's campaign was accompanied by brutal, scorched earth policies, burning crops and slaughtering cattle, with the resulting famine. His campaign included Ratlin Island, which would suffer three massacres, this one in 1557 by the Earl of Sussex, by the Earl of Essex in 1591, and by the Campbells of Scotland in 1642. Sussex increasingly tried to bring O'Neill to book, fearing his network of support that stretched from Kildare the Earl of Argyle in the Scottish Isles, but continually he failed to bring around his defeat. On one occasion he attempted to build an alliance of minor seps of O'Neill against Shane, only for Shane to march proudly through Ulster, intimidating all of the seps back to his side. And initially at least, and to Sussex's despair, when Elizabeth came to the throne she was rather inclined to accept Shane O'Neill's de facto supremacy. Sussex managed to talk her out of it. Anyway, he had to think there's no point with the old surrender and re grant if folks like Shane could just replace Tyrone, who had accepted the deal and been appointed by the Queen. But try as he might, Sussex could not bring Shane O'Neill to heel. Once again he tried to build an alliance, this time based on the support of the O'Donnells, but O'Neill got in first, defeated the O'Donnells, and took the head of the clan prisoner. This didn't present alliance with English viceroys in a particularly positive light for the locals. Ulster had now been militarised for a long time and added to his local warriors, Shane also had contingents of the famed Gallaglasses. Have we talked about Gallaglasses? I feel we might have done so since the Gallaglass had been a feature of Irish history since maybe the 13th century. We are talking here of a breed of professional mercenaries. The name comes from an anglicisation of the word Garlogluch since they originally came from the western isles of Scotland. They came to Ireland to fight either as freelancers or as part of the lords household although generally it was only the greater lords who could afford a permanent addition to their household either by paying in coin or in kind or by settling them on land. Smaller lords tended to hire them in when needed. The role of Galaglas often became hereditary and retained a clan structure from the Gaelic highlands. Over time then, many Galaglass clans became embedded into Irish society, joined by the local Irish who wanted to escape the life of a peasant. Some clans became well known in specific areas, like Macsheehy and Macsweeney in Munster, Macdonnell in Munster, Macsweeney in Ulster. I am sure my mate Frank McClintock told me that the McClintocks also to emigrated to Ireland, but I could find no reference. So maybe they went to Ireland in peace. Certainly Frank is a peaceable birding sort of chap with a wonderful hotel in Portugal you might be interested to know called Paradise in Portugal. You could go there. Back to English atrocities, which were very much part of the Tudor Island story, of course. But over the centuries, The Galaglas wasn't actually a great deal better, dedicated to war, with a less than generous attitude towards the peasantry given their constant closeness to death. But they could form the backbone of both Gaelic and Anglo-Irish armies and were a formidable enemy. Twice more Sussex invaded Ulster, twice more he failed to beat Shane the Proud, even trying in August 1561 to have him assassinated. Nothing seemed to work, and the relationship between Sussex and O'Neill descended into a slanging match by correspondence. O'Neill stoutly defended his right to Ulster. "'You began with a conquest in my land without cause, and so long as there be any Englishman in my country against my will, I will not send agreement nor message unto you from hence, but will send my complaint in another way.' to the Queen's Majesty, to declare unto her grace how you interrupted my goings-on. True to form then, by 1562 Elizabeth lost confidence in Sussex and she contacted Kildare to strike a deal with O'Neill. Under this, O'Neill came to London to submit to the Queen and discuss terms, with Sussex scuttling over to make his case as well. Shane's arrival at court at Westminster was recorded by William Camden, Shane O'Neill came out of Ireland that year, as promised. Surrounded by gallow glass for security, with bare heads, ash-coloured hanging curls, golden saffron undershirts, if not the colour of infected human urine, loosed sleeves, short tunics and shaggy lace. The English nobility followed with as much wonderment as if they had come from China or America. Shane clearly made a massive impression, but he came not just to submit, but to treat. And in his arguments were exposed that fundamental flaw in surrender and regrant. Because Shane O'Neill, amongst other arguments, claimed that Tyrone could not have been made Earl, because he did not own the land as an individual, it was owned by the Sept. O'Neill claimed his authority by Brehon law, and as we've seen, that was incompatible in this case with English law. Even Elizabeth, keen to resolve the violence, could not make O'Neill lord in Ulster without completely torching the power of the crown to award Eldoms. O'Neill left disillusioned by the potential to reach any kind of agreement. He was simply confirmed as a captain by Elizabeth, not hereditary earl, which was a fudge that achieved precisely zip. So nothing was resolved at the visit. Once again, Kildare intervened, agreeing a treaty with Shane that effectively gave O'Neill all he wanted and made him an almost independent ruler of Ulster. Shane then ruled with a cruelty and waged war with a viciousness that competed with any of his peers and with the English, which kind of complicates any purely Irish nationalist story, but the English could only put up with his de facto control and there were potential benefits of him, persuading Shane, for example, to attack the Scots in Antrim, though he had little success on this occasion. But it was increasingly clear that Shane's rule in Ulster was incompatible with either peace, good governance or English rule. However, O'Neill's story would not end under Sussex, but under his successor, Henry Sidney. Sussex had done his best to establish English rule through the rest of Ireland too, travelling energetically to impress and overawe Gaelic chiefs. But his performance against the O'Neill fatally weakened his position. He fell from grace and was recalled to England, which came about as Robert Dudley corresponded with Kildare and O'Neill and undermined Sussex's position at court. It's a feature of the English viceroys, actually. The court faction in England played a greater part in their success or failure than it did in English politics. Viceroy's had to watch their back at court, all of which undermined their ability to pursue consistent objectives in Ireland. When Henry Sidney took over in 1566, he made the defeat of O'Neill his priority. O'Neill was too powerful to be tolerated in his view. As Sidney wrote to Dudley, I believe Lucifer was never puffed up with more pride nor ambition than Shane O'Neill. Yes, he constantly kept 600 armed men about him. He is able to bring to the field a 1,000 horsemen and 4,000 footmen. O'Neill eventually was declared a traitor and Sidney marched into Ulster. Now at last O'Neill was challenged and drew on all his resources seeking help from the Earls of Desmond in Munster from Mary in Scotland asking for 5,000 men from France. But in the end was not Sydney, but Shane's old enemy, the O'Donnell of Tyre Connell, that ended Shane the Proud's career, defeating him on the River Swalley, and by so doing, Shane's supporters leaked away. O'Neill himself escaped, but his reputation was irreparably damaged, and in desperation he sought help from the Scots, the MacDonalds of Antrim. Given his ups and down relationship with the MacDonald, this was brave. Brave very much in a yes minister sort of way and the result was that his throat was cut along with those of his advisers and his head sent to Sydney as a nice present. Sydney, stuck it on a pole outside Dublin Castle, as you do. O'Neill's reputation suffered at the hands of English contemporaries and historians, seeming to leave no legacy except violence, ambition and instability. Even Irish nationalist historians struggled to incorporate him into the Gaelic tradition, repelled by his ambivalent attitude to his fellow Gael and his pursuit of English recognition. But Shane organised and harnessed the power of Ulster and Gaelic Ireland as never before, and for many years bulked the extension of English political power and culture into the north of Ireland. Oakley doakley, I think that's enough for now. Next time we'll talk more about political events in Ireland to around 1590, let's say, the eve of the Nine Years' War. And we can talk a bit about plantations, society and religion. It'll be a hoot. Meanwhile, do not forget the history of England shop and the possibility of both swag and or membership of the history of Ireland for your friends, family or indeed most hated of enemies. Let me briefly thank a couple of blokes before I leave. Matt the mason who got in touch. He tells me that he's an experienced mason now, 46 years old now. So He doesn't do paving anymore because he feels it's beneath him. Matt does really exist. (laughs) That is a bona fide mason's joke. Could I just urge sewage workers or plumbers not to get in touch with their trade jokes? Then there's Frank Geraghty, who tried to give me some advice on pronunciation, but it's hard remotely over the interweb, so I fluffed most of it. Sorry, Frank. In Penance, there is a nice folk song that Frank provided that I put on the post for this episode about the life of Shane the Proud. Enough blathering. Good luck, everyone, and have a great fortnight.